In the last three years, the number of people on Medicaid, the public health insurance program for low-income and disabled Americans, has ballooned. It's gone from 71 million to more than 90 million after Congress effectively blocked states from kicking people off the rolls in the middle of a global pandemic. But starting on April 1st, Over the next year, an estimated 15 million people could lose their Medicaid coverage. Some will get insurance through work or Obamacare, but millions who are still eligible are expected to end up uninsured. Today, University of Minnesota health economist Sae Nikpe shares three studies to help explain what is happening and how states and employers could keep more people insured. From the studio at the Leonard Davis Institute at the University of Pennsylvania, I'm Dan Gorenstein. This is Tradeoffs. Sai Nikpe, what is happening, my friend? So nice to see you. Nice to see you too. How are you? How's the family? I'm good. I'm preparing for a Persian New Year and digging out of inches of ice. And uh, yeah. Enjoying life. Do you have one of those like ice chopper things? I have an ice chipper and I channel all my frustrations into chipping ice. I did it for three hours today. It was great. Best workout. I love an ice chipper. Uh, We don't get to use them much in Philly anymore, unfortunately. So setting aside your rage that you're getting out (laughs) on the ice, let's talk a little bit about Medicaid. You're here to tell us about the 15 million people who could lose their Medicaid over the next year. Say, with the pandemic easing, Congress voted last December to let states restart the process of clearing their rolls. And this all starts April 1st. That's right. And to put that 15 million in context... I remember how we were all geeking out that 7 million people had gained Medicaid in the first few years of Obamacare. So 15 million people losing Medicaid? Dan, that's historic. And I should say, this is an estimate, but the federal government and the Independent Urban Institute both project around 15 million people will lose Medicaid. And and Sayed, before we dive into what may happen to these 15 million people, let's set the baseline In terms of the evidence, what do we know about having Medicaid coverage? Like, what does it actually mean for people? Yeah, so there's like a Mount Kilimanjaro-sized pile of evidence on Medicaid, Dan. That's a lot. That's a lot. It's a lot. It's a lot. And it shows that Medicaid is associated with better access to care, more financial security, better health, and even lower mortality. You know, I'm thinking about the Oregon Health Insurance Experiment, which showed Medicaid improved people's financial security and mental health outcomes. And there are recent papers published in top economic journals that show Medicaid literally saved lives. And what about having Medicaid continuously through the pandemic, Saye? Is there any evidence on that? Yeah. Unfortunately, it's too soon to tell because it usually takes a couple of years of data to get what we need to come to those kinds of conclusions. But anecdotally, the Kaiser Family Foundation did some focus groups with people who've been on Medicaid during the pandemic, and they say things like, it's helped me get care more easily, it's been a safety net after losing a job, and one person simply put, 
having the security of Medicaid is everything. But I also have to imagine that keeping all these people on Medicaid has not been cheap. Absolutely. Medicaid spending jumped 9% between 2020 and 2021. That's about triple what we normally see. Okay, so losing this coverage could really matter for people's physical and financial health, but it could also save states and the federal government a pretty penny. Real quick, say, what's literally going to happen over the coming months that will lead to people losing their coverage? So Medicaid eligibility is usually tied to people's incomes, and normally they have to regularly prove that they still qualify, and that's known as redetermination. Right. In the 39 states in Washington, D.C. that have expanded Medicaid, a family of four has to make less than $40,000. In non-expansion states, it's even less. That's right. Now, some states automate this process, but it can often require a lot of paperwork or even face-to-face -face interviews. That's what Congress basically blocked state Medicaid offices from doing during the pandemic. But now Congress is giving states 14 months to do three years worth of determinations. And Dan, we're talking about Medicaid offices that are often underfunded and dealing with serious staffing shortages. A pretty tall task. Yeah, it's going to be a big lift, Dan. States have never had to do this many redeterminations this quickly before. And there's a lot of uncertainty about what will happen. But something I love, Saye, about you health economist types is when faced with uncertainty, you guys run to the data. And you've brought three papers that give us a sense of what could happen to these 15 million people. Can you just tell us about this first one? Yeah. So the first paper is the one that actually reports the estimates of how many people could lose coverage starting this April. And it's from ASPE, the Office of the Assistant Secretary for Planning and Evaluation, which is like the research department for federal health officials. And their report makes it clear that these 15 million people who could lose their Medicaid are not all the same. What, what do you mean? Well, the report breaks them into two groups. The first group are people who make too much money to qualify for Medicaid. ASPE estimates there are about 8 million people in that group, and these folks should be able to get insurance to their jobs or on the Obamacare exchanges. Okay, so that leaves about 7 million people. What's up with them? I'm assuming they're still eligible for Medicaid? You're right, Dan. They are still eligible. They could lose coverage because of what's called administrative churn. This is where people end up getting kicked off of Medicaid because they basically had paperwork issues, even though financially they still qualify. And what do paperwork issues look like, Sae? Well, sometimes people move or they change their phone number and the Medicaid office can't get a hold of them and let them know that they need to reapply. Folks might miss an in-person appointment because they have work or childcare responsibilities, too. So we're talking about 7 million people typically with very low incomes who may work, but in jobs without health benefits, and they could end up uninsured. This is really the core tension of this whole process, right? On one hand, states want to shed the people who make too much money, but Medicaid officials also know eligible people will end up losing coverage too. It's what happens every time they do redetermination. But 
given how big and fast this is all happening this year, it seems like there's more room for things to go wrong, meaning people could get hurt. That's right. The federal government is giving states 14 months to work through this backlog to minimize the hurt. But some states are going to go even faster. Arkansas, for example, is planning to redetermine tens of thousands of people in just six months. So for the last three years, people on Medicaid have been on the program without having to think about all this paperwork. Do they even know this redetermination thing's coming at them? This, to me, is one of the scariest parts, Dan. The Urban Institute did a survey in December and found that nearly two-thirds of adults on Medicaid had no idea they had to start confirming their eligibility again. When we come back, Sae looks to the research for insights on what can be done to help people in both these groups stay insured. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. I'm Shankar Vedantam here to tell you about a great mystery. That mystery is you. As the host of a podcast called Hidden Brain, I explore big questions about what it means to be human. Questions like, where do our emotions come from? Why do so many of us feel overwhelmed by modern life? How can we better understand the people around us? Discover your hidden brain. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. I'm here with Tradeoff's Senior Research Advisor, Sae Nikpay, who's brought in several papers to help us understand what could happen when, for the first time in three years, states begin to reassess who's eligible for Medicaid on April 1st. Sae, your first study laid out the two groups of people who could lose their coverage. The first are folks who now make too much money to qualify. That's about 8 million people. And the second are people who are still eligible, but may get kicked off for administrative reasons. Maybe their address changed and they never knew they needed to reapply. And that's about 7 million people. And this whole redetermination process is enormous. Yeah. So the good news here, Dan, is that I've got a paper about each of these groups and they offer policymakers a bit of a roadmap to keep as many people insured as possible. Sounds good. Let's start with people who make too much money. Okay, so first off, a lot of folks in this group should be able to get insurance through work or the Obamacare marketplaces. But getting them into those plans is harder than it sounds. The devil is in the details. I know a health economist's favorite phrase. Why don't you tell us about the paper site? It's actually from our own Tradeoffs Advisory Board member, Adriana McIntyre, who's an assistant professor at Harvard. She published a paper in JAMA Health Forum last October that looked at the most effective ways to move people from Medicaid onto private plans in the exchanges. There's not a ton of data on this, Dan, but based on the few studies out there, Adriana found that only 3 to 5% of people who leave Medicaid end up getting on an Obamacare plan. 
I guess that's what you mean when you say this is harder than it sounds. Yeah. You know, federal health officials estimate about half of these 8 million people should get covered through work. That leaves the other half. And I think it's easy for health policy people like me to assume the exchanges will be a life preserver for folks in this moment. But Adriana's work shows us that the more Medicaid does to help people swim, the more likely they are to stay insured. Nothing like a good old Sae Nick Pay metaphor. Thank you. Go on. So she cites several randomized controlled trials where states tested different ways of increasing enrollment in Obamacare plans. And these studies found that simple reminders from the state, like physical letters, emails, phone calls, they help get people enrolled. They boost signups anywhere from 7 to 16 percent. But what really seems to make a difference is reminders plus a little bit of hand-holding, connecting people to someone who can get them signed up while they're on the phone together. In one of those trials published in 2022, people in California who got a reminder email and a call connecting them to enrollment assistance were almost 50 percent more likely to sign up for a plan. So that's impressive. Based on the research that we have, say, the most effective way to make sure people get signed up for a new plan is for someone to personally reach out to them and help them through the process. That's really the takeaway? Exactly. Obviously, hiring a bunch of people to call tens or hundreds of thousands of people is going to cost a lot of money, which states may not see as a priority or see as financially feasible. So that's what the state can do to help people transition from Medicaid to other insurance. What about employer SIA? Since a good chunk of these 8 million people are expected to get coverage through their jobs, is there any research on what employers can or should do? Nothing directly, Dan. But based on the evidence we do have, making sure people know their Medicaid is going away and giving them as much help as possible seems like a good thing that employers could do this spring. All right, Saye, your last study. Hit me. Okay, so let's go back to our other group, the 7 million people who may lose Medicaid even though they're still eligible. We know that people will lose coverage due to that administrative churn missing a phone call or a piece of mail reminding them to reapply. Some states have tried to limit that churn, and there's a study by researchers at the RAND Corporation on New York's Medicaid program, which for years now has allowed people to stay on Medicaid for a full 12 months once they're enrolled. So that means in New York, people don't have to worry about all the paperwork of constantly proving their eligibility, which should cut back on people getting kicked off Medicaid even though they're eligible. Yeah, and what's really cool here is the researchers found that people were less likely to get kicked off, but they also found that once this policy was in place, hospital admissions and monthly costs went down, which suggests that avoiding that administrative churn can help people stay covered without ballooning costs. How should states think about this finding? Like, if if the state of Minnesota called you up and asked you to advise them on redetermination for Minnesota, what would you tell them about this study? I think I'd tell them that it makes sense. We can't say that these outcomes, the lower monthly health care costs and fewer hospital admissions, are a direct result of New York's 12-month policy. You know, there was no comparison group to gauge what happens when people don't have continuous coverage. 
But the question I always ask myself with evaluation studies like this is, does the result make sense given everything we know? And I think it does. It seems reasonable to me that making it easier to stay on Medicaid, even outside of a global pandemic, could benefit people's health, given all that we know about Medicaid's effect on health, going back to the research we talked about at the beginning of the show. Right. Better access to care, more financial security, improved health, and even lower mortality. Say, after digging through all this research... What's your big takeaway? What what does the research tell us about what this next year is going to look like as states start pruning their roles? I think it's going to be a really hard year for a lot of people. It's going to be hard for Medicaid workers, many of whom have never done a redetermination before and now are going to have to do a lot of them in a very short time. It's going to be hard for the millions of people who need to figure out how to go from Medicaid onto private health insurance. And it's going to be maybe the hardest on the nearly 7 million people who should be able to stay on Medicaid, but they end up getting kicked off anyway, and they wind up uninsured. Obviously, Medicaid is incredibly political, but I think these last three years are a reminder that if states want to make sure that people who are eligible for Medicaid actually get it, it's within their power. Sia Nick Payne, it's always a pleasure. Thank you so much for being here. Of course, Dan. If you want more health policy research, make sure you're subscribed to our new and improved Research Corner newsletter. Every week, our research reporter, Soleil Shah, delivers the latest in health policy research for free right to your inboxes. You can sign up using the link in the show notes or by going to tradeoffs.org. I'm Dan Gorenstein. This is Tradeoffs. Since 1983, Medicare has covered hospice for people at the end of their lives. But that 40-year-old policy no longer fits the people and providers who use it, a problem that's got Medicare testing a pretty dramatic solution. I think all of us know the hospice we've known and loved may not be the same in five to ten years. A federal experiment that could change how millions of people die. Next time on Tradeoffs. Thanks for listening to Trade-Offs. If you've just discovered us, remember to subscribe to the feed so you never miss an episode. Subscribing is free and easy on whichever podcasting app you use, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, anywhere you listen to podcasts. The Trade-Offs team is producers Ryan Levy and Alex Olgan, editor Kate Cahan, executive director Jessica Silverman, audience engagement lead Shannon Crane, research reporter Soleil Shaw, production engineer Cedric Wilson, sound designer Andrew Perella, executive editor Dan Gorenstein, and senior producer Leslie Walker. The Trade-Offs theme song was composed by Ty Sitterman with additional music this episode from Blue Dot Sessions and Epidemic Sound. Additional thanks this week to Adriana McIntyre. Thanks also to all our listeners who helped to support our work, including Gina Upchurch, Daniel Wolfson, and Limor Daphne. Our media partner is Side Effects Public Media, based at WFYI. Tradeoffs is supported by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, Arnold Ventures, West Health, the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation, the Scan Foundation, the Sozose Foundation, the Leonard Davis Institute of Health Economics at the University of Pennsylvania, California Healthcare Foundation and the National Institute for Healthcare Management Foundation. 
The views expressed in this episode are those of the individuals and not those of Tradeoff staff, advisors, or funders. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.